This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by Springer Nature. It's the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm Cynthia Graber. The public is becoming increasingly interested in genetic testing, as seen by the rise of direct-to-consumer testing. At the same time, research is demonstrating that medical genetic testing targeted only at at at-risk populations might miss people who could otherwise be helped by such screening. And so Paul Lacaz, head of public health genomics at Monash University, says there's a likelihood that population-wide genetic screening will become available in the future. So as a geneticist and someone who's passionate about genomics, we've kind of seen the landscape moving towards a future where there may be universal genetic testing. And I've also always wondered what the total preventative potential would be of universal genetic testing. Uh, How much disease could we really prevent? How much benefit could we gain? Which conditions should we screen for? But no one had really done the work required to calculate the numbers on what that would look like. Australia, he says, could be the country where such a thing might play out earlier than in other countries because of the relatively small population size and the federally funded healthcare system. So he and his colleagues decided to model the costs, benefits, and cost effectiveness of screening more than 2.6 million young adults in Australia. The results are published in a new paper in the journal Genetics and Medicine. The team combined both screening for four of the most penetrant familial cancers and for whether the young adults are carriers for inheritable genetic diseases. So previously, and in the literature, most screening programs or health cost-effectiveness studies for population-based testing have been for a single condition, so cystic fibrosis alone for carrier screening, for example, or breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2, um, testing alone. Whereas we really thought that the true cost effectiveness would come in combining screening for multiple conditions into one screening test, even if those conditions are unrelated. And then we we reasoned that offering that kind of screening in early adulthood would be the optimal time because it's below the age of onset for a lot of familial cancers. And we we chose 18 to 25-year-olds as the target population. And that's also typically below the age of people having their first child. So it's it's the time at which carrier screening and reproductive carrier status would be most beneficial. They modeled the impacts of screening each condition individually and then separating out the carrier tests from the cancer screenings and then combining those. And as we combined those conditions into subgroups, we saw the cost effectiveness improving. And then we when we combined them all together into one screening test, Um, we saw the the optimal cost effectiveness achieved. So it was kind of an iterative approach of looking at everything individually, then combining into subgroups, then combining all into one single screen. Overall, the model found the impact to be quite significant. So we found that population-based testing for breast and ovarian cancer alone would be cost effective by our calculations. And that was consistent with some of the other studies, modeling studies that have been done for population-based cancer testing. However, we found that when carrier screening was added to the model, the cost effectiveness improved even more and approached cost saving. So that's the term used when the threshold of of, uh, spending per disability adjusted life year approaches zero. So basically the benefit and the, the cost savings that are achieved when weighed up against the cost of screening start to balance out, which means it, it could it could either be a break-even situation or it would save the, the health system money by, by offering this um, screening test. That was really when we, we thought that we had um, 
quite a significant finding because it's quite rare in cost-effectiveness analysis to approach the cost-saving threshold. Dr. Lacaz says the most significant assumption they made in their model was about the uptake of the test. One of the most important assumptions that we made was the uptake rate of the screening. So I don't think anyone really knows what the uptake would be if there was fully reimbursed universal preventive genetic testing for everyone in a country. And there are a variety of of reasons or issues why people might not want to undertake genetic testing, especially if they're otherwise healthy. And we assumed an uptake rate of 71% after offering screening, which was based on a randomized trial in a smaller population. However, that is ultimately unknown and highly dependent on the level of public awareness, public education around genomics, and willingness and faith of of people to participate in in genetic testing and and screening. And here is where, he says, there are a number of issues. Yeah, I think that the the critical aspect is to do the screening properly in a way that identifies genuine risk and has scientific validity and technical validity, and then still accommodates individual autonomy and choice for what a person does in terms of whether they want to take the test or not and whether they want to undertake an intervention or not. So not not have implying implicit pressure on people to undertake the test or undergo the intervention. And so there's stories of implicit pressure applied by either by society or by clinicians for people to do certain things that they may not be comfortable with or may regret. And when those include irreversible surgeries, that's a very serious issue. He says he hopes their research would lead to a pilot program for population-based screening in order to ensure that the assumption of penetrance is still accurate and scientifically valid, that people aren't pressured, and that the healthcare system can handle such an increase in genetic testing. So that would be the education of genetic health professionals, as well as the, the broader medical workforce, um, so non-genetics clinicians, oncologists, even nurses, GPs, so uh, general practitioners, primary care. I think that genomic literacy has to improve across the board throughout the entire uh, healthcare system in order for population scale genomics to even be considered a possibility. And I think that things are improving in that regard, but there's still a long way to go. Overall, there are still plenty of ethical issues ahead, he says, ones that he and his colleagues are addressing in a future paper. Those would include you know, how do we practically deal with this volume of testing at the laboratory level when you're talking about millions of people? How do you maintain informed consent for people to undertake testing? How would you offer pre-test genetic counselling to millions of people? Would people really know what they're signing up for and be aware of all of the pros and cons of undertaking genetic testing? Do the appropriate regulatory protections exist for consumers, including the use of genetic test results in insurance and and life insurance underwriting, which can still happen in Australia and other countries, the potential for genetic discrimination or stigmatization of people who are identified to be at risk. And then there's the ability of the health system to actually provide the care and the support and the interventions for people who are identified at risk. And there's already very long waiting lists for example, for colonoscopies or other elective surgeries in Australia. And the the pressure on those services would increase significantly 
if you had a, a massive order of magnitude or more increase in the people that were identified at risk. Dr. Lacaz says countries need to think about how they'll handle population-based genetic testing, issues of data privacy and governance, and how it would and will change the healthcare system. And they need help from the genomics community to address them. And that's also something that we think uh, needs to happen from the research community is, is more engagement with policymakers about how to take steps towards planning for the genomic future um, as responsibly as possible. Genetics and Medicine is the official peer review journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is published by Springer Nature. I'm Cynthia Graber.